Hello, Doom, Doom Bippers. I <laughs> uh, hope everybody is doing all right. Uh, they say the worst of this thing is supposed to be the next two weeks. So hang in there, you guys. Keep me posted as how you're doing. Right now, the Hoff House is okay. Everybody seems to be healthy for the most part. I've got a little chest congestion, but that's not out of the ordinary for me, especially around this time with allergies. Like I usually get um, some form of bronchitis, which made me a little nervous that uh, I was going to be, you know, extra susceptible at this time. But I've been trying to, <clears throat> as I'm saying that, I got a little bubble in my throat. Um, I don't know. I've been trying to, you know, listen to the news as little as I can while still staying informed. Because I don't know if you're anything like me, you start to hear things and you start to kind of feel those symptoms. <laughs> the more I read, the more my chest tightens. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Um, so I'm trying to minimize my exposure to that kind of stuff. Like only because because all the news places, they're trying to vie for our attention. They're trying to give us clickbait. So if they get one little piece of uh, possible information, they're going to let you, <laughs> you know, they're going to let you hear about it. And it's always, you can always tell like, uh, this might save your life or this could do this. If you hear those kind of words, you kind of like take that with a grain of salt because that's just clickbait. They don't know. They're using those words like could, possibly, might, um uh, and you see that and you're like, okay, this person has no idea. So unfortunately, I think that's kind of the boat we're all in right now. They're still figuring things out. That Dr. Uh, Fucci or Fauci or whatever his name is, uh, he seems to be a good guy to listen to. Uh, but also you got to be a little guarded with what he says. Like not that you don't want to believe it, but, you know, I don't know. You sometimes you watch him in interviews and you see him kind of smile. He's got a little smugness to him. He's probably enjoying the extra attention he's getting right now. And right now, for the him, this is the Super Bowl. He doesn't. I mean, he wants this to go away, but he doesn't want it to go away. You know, like he he wants to stay in the forefront. Probably even if he were to tell you, no, I don't want that. I prefer being behind the scenes. I'm a shy guy. Yeah, but you kind of like it. You kind of like it. So, I mean, once this thing subsides, you know, he's a fair, fairly old guy. He might not see another pandemic in his life. So this is like his Super Bowl. So I'm also a little guarded and maybe unwarrantedly so uh, about that. Um, but try and, you know, read the information. I just got past something that talked about breathing exercises um, that could possibly help. And listen, I, I don't think it could hurt. That's That's my thing. Like... I, I haven't seen any science. I heard a doctor talk about it, and I heard a reporter talk about it who was going through coronavirus, and uh, he was emphatic about how you should be doing these breathing exercises and stretches and stuff. I don't think it's going to hurt. So, I, I mean, I, I did them. I did the breathing exercises. Did you guys see that video? Did you try the breathing exercises? It's worth looking at, and maybe if it gives you hope, that's good, and maybe it does some good. But uh, I wouldn't bank on it. I would still follow medical advice as much as possible. Um, but we're trying to stay healthy. Stay indoors, guys. Uh, you know, don't go out there. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. Just hunker down. And, and the more we all do that, the less time we all have to stay in. So everybody needs to do your part. Right now, one of my kids is freaking out in the background. <laughs> my kids have been cra literally crawling the walls. So... Um, we go through these, you know, somebody will doink their dome at some point. But they're literally crawling the walls. They are 
they he the my little kid he can climb anything he can grab a door stud and go all the way up he <laughs> it's pretty funny and so he must have just doinked himself and he he will spaz like one little one little paper cut and he cr- like yells like he lost a finger so um you know we're doing our best to stay indoors even though we're it's driving us insane so please do the same stay indoors protect yourselves and others you might think well i'm feeling fine well that's how a lot of people are that are carrying it and and also if you feel fine stay in because we don't need you getting sick we don't need uh more people taking up beds in hospitals and and here's the thing and i heard somebody say this right in the beginning you know if we do this right if we if we respond the way we're supposed to we will look back and think that we overreacted that's what's supposed to happen. So hopefully we, we look at this and we go, was this worth tanking you know, the economy temporarily? Was this worth us all staying in and a lot of people losing their jobs? Well, hopefully we look back and think no. But the reality will be was, yes, that's what we had to do to mitigate the death and mitigate the damage that this thing did. But we got to all be in this together. We all got to do it. We can't have some people following it and other people not because that will just lengthen the term. Uh, So unless it's essential, I I plead with you guys to stay in. Listen to a couple extra uh, podcasts. I'm glad that you've made the Hoffcast as one of your staples that you listen to each week. Uh, Continue, please, to pass that along. Um, I'm trying to crank them out. With as high quality and uh, high capacity as possible. So please, if you enjoy it, pass it along and make sure to uh, follow and uh, patronize the guests that I have on there. Um, and, and if you haven't added me on social media or on Spotify or created a Nick Hoff Pandora channel, please do that because that's all. That's something free you can do that helps me. Watch my Instagram videos. Put a like or a comment under my Facebook videos. All that stuff helps, like, and that's and that's free because that's how, as comedians, we can continue to grow and we can uh, hopefully monetize the things that we've been doing, especially um, in situations like this where I can't go out and do live performances, so I can't make the money I'm used to making. Uh, fortunately for me, I still have residuals coming in from my album uh, that gets played on Sirius XM and gets online sales, so that's what's saving us right now and keeping me out of alleyways, <laughs> trading sexual favors for small amounts of dollars. Um, so please do that. Um, help me to grow. So, you know, pass the doom, doom, bick down the road. Uh, give it to somebody else that could use a laugh. And my guest on the podcast this week, dude, I'm really excited about this one. Uh, uh, Clayton Anderson. American astronaut, originally from the great state of Nebraska, lives in Houston, Texas now, and he has been in space uh, for over five months. He, he did a big stint at the International Space Station, and uh, then he went out on another mission. And we, we talk a lot about this. I'm really happy to have him on the podcast. I met him uh, a year ago at a stand-up comedy show I did with Larry the Cable Guy, and he couldn't have been nicer. He and his wife Susan were amazing. Um, I, I've been reading his books. I read, um, he's got three books out. If you want to check those, um, you can order them online. Um, it's, uh, he's got the ordinary spaceman where he tells all about his experience, uh, as an astronaut and in life. And then he's got one that he just answers questions. It's, 
Uh, it's called It's a Question of Space, and he just takes p- things that people have asked him online, and he collates his answers right there. And so that's really an interesting read. That's the one I've read so far. I'm currently on An Ordinary Spaceman, and I also uh, read our kids his uh, children's book, A is for Astronaut, which is a fun one, and it's got you know some big words in there that'll baffle the kids, and they like seeing the pictures. It's really coolly uh, illustrated. So um, if you're interested in those things, please find those. Uh, you can find him on social media. He's really active on Twitter, and uh, he posts some interesting things. He keeps up with um, he keeps up with NASA and, and what's going on there. And then he just he's a funny guy, and uh, he's got you know a good personality. He gives lots of talks around the country, and he sat down with me. We were both in quarantine, but he sat down over Skype. So. And by the way, these last few episodes have been over Skype, so the the audio isn't as perfect uh, as it has been in the past, but please bear with me. Understand that's what we're doing. We can't get these face-to-face meetings. Uh, so find Clayton C. Anderson on Twitter. He's at Astro underscore Clay, A-S-T-R-O underscore clay c-l-a-y that's clayton c anderson uh follow him on twitter and shoot him a message say hey heard you on the hoffcast uh enjoyed the talk that way these guys know that that you know they didn't waste an hour of their lives they see it um as something and and, you know tag me in that as well at nick hoff um so i can see that I, i like retweeting those types of things and i can follow you as well and we can stay in touch that way. So uh, we get into a lot of things. We talk a lot about space. We talk about the current uh, climate with this epidemic and you know how that might have uh, changed how he operated in space. I, you know, I was really interested because he kind of spent time in isolation. He was with two other guys, but you know, these two other Russian astronauts, that's all the contact he had besides like just talking. Uh, you know, he couldn't go out there and get a hug from his wife or his kids or anything at that time. So it was really an interesting conversation. I hope you enjoy it. So without further ado, enjoy my conversation as episode 58 of the Hoffcast with Clayton Anderson, famed astronaut. Doom, doom, bip. Doom bit, doom doom bit, doom doom bit, doom bit, doom doom bit. This is the half cast. Before we start, is there anything that's you don't want to talk about? Anything that's you're kind of like, well, that's stupid. Don't ask me that. Well, if you do, and I feel that way, I'll tell you, hey, that's stupid. Don't ask. <laughs> Oh, God, I hope that happens. All right, cool. Welcome back to another episode of the Hoffcast. My guest this week is famed astronaut Clayton Anderson. Clay, uh, we met a year ago in Houston, Texas, right, at a comedy show for Larry the Cable Guy. And you came backstage, and I knew who you were because you're the you're the Nebraska astronaut. We're all very proud of you as a Nebraska boy. I've been hearing about you for years, and and then you were there, and I was kind of starstruck. And is there? Do you get that? Do are people starstruck? Are people a little bit nervous to when they talk to you at first? Uh, no, most of the time they say, "Hey, you owe me money." <laughs> <clears throat> but I yeah. guess in Nebraska, I'm obviously a little more famous than you know in texas nobody knows me in texas nobody knows me in montana or california (laughs) but if i walk to a 
restaurant in Lincoln or Hastings or even Omaha, perhaps, and I sit down, sometimes people right. stare at me. Right? right, right, right. Are most astronauts in Houston? Like, is that still yeah. where they congregate? That's our base, right? So if you anybody selected to be an astronaut, they're going to be required to move to Houston because right. that's where most of their training is done. And then once they fly and do their thing, they can relocate if they'd like. But typically, they all live in Houston. Okay. Well, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you was because of this whole quarantine. Well, I wanted to talk to you ever since I met you and have you on my podcast, but I thought, man, he's probably got an interesting perspective as a man who's lived on the International Space Station for, what, was it five months at the on the longest stretch? 151 days, 18 hours, 23 minutes, and 14 seconds. <laughs> got it down to the second. How are you dealing with this whole quarantine? Well, it's it's difficult. I'm a, I think that we're hanging in there. Uh, it's really difficult to establish, reestablish that schedule, that pattern that you had before, which I think for most people, astronauts or otherwise, that's one of the things that they deem is important in the quarantine to have a schedule that you establish for your kids, for your wife, for your family, you know, right. such that it seems a little more normal. And yeah, you'll have to do things differently. Like you can't go to the gym and exercise when you typically do, but you can certainly go outside and walk during that period or whatever. So uh, for us here, my daughter's got a job part-time, so that keeps her on her schedule. Uh, my wife's working from home, so she's checking in at eight o'clock and doing her teleconferences, which kind of keeps her on a schedule. Right. Uh, it's a little harder for me simply because I'm retired and I do what I need to do or want to do. So my typical schedule was just to work pretty hard till the morning till about 11, then go to the gym. And once the gym was over, then come home and do honeydews and other stuff, take my nap, <laughs> watch a few episodes <laughs> of Blue Bloods. <laughs> when you mentioned quarantine just a second ago, you were talking about when, upon reentry. Well, it, any so a space mission is different. You, you have two different types of quarantine. Okay. Before you launch, you as a crew are quarantined because they don't want you to catch anything before sure. you launch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we actually had an incident. We, NASA, had an incident during one mission where the shuttle crew typically has a little party <clears throat> a couple days before launch, and the guest list is is vetted, and somebody got through that was actually sick that had a bug, and so then they really? passed that bug to the crew, and the crew took the bug up to, to space, which meant... You know, astronaut one got it, and then astronaut two, then astronaut three, then yeah, astronaut. Yeah, yeah. So that's not a good thing. But so when we quarantined this? for about two weeks, and then when you come home, you don't really quarantine at all. Uh, the Russians will put you in quarantine for a little bit, but it's kind of, from what I've seen personally, it's not very strict. Right. Uh, and when we were on the shuttle, we didn't have any quarantine when we came home. So. Um, now you take those two ideas of quarantine before launch and after launch, but now you put us in a space station for five months and we are in essence quarantined from the rest of the planet. Sure. But it's not hard to do because you have that set schedule and NASA, the ground team tells you what you're going to be doing almost every hour of every day. Right, right. And 
So you wake up, you have clean up, you have breakfast, then you have a little meeting, and then you go start to do your work, and you're going to do task A, and then you're going to do task B, and then you're going to do task C, and then you're going to have lunch, and then you exercise, and then, you know, yada, yada, yada. So it's really hard for me uh, to compare that quarantine in space to what we're doing here on the ground because I was so busy. You right, know, I never, right. never really thought about it, so... Right. You retired in uh, 2013. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, you've you've had it a little bit uh, more of a relaxed schedule. But did you feel a lot of that uh, training kind of cross over? Like when you retired, did you just sit like my dad sat in a lazy boy for six months and we all just kind of looked at him was like, is this you just going to lay there until the end? Is that what's going to happen? Or did you just say, like, well, OK, I'm going to wake up now and I'm going to do this and this and this. Uh, I, I kind of struggled with it. You know, I'm I'm not your typical astronaut. A lot of those guys are so driven that they do exactly what you would think they would do, right? They wake up the next day and they got project, project. Do, do, do. <laughs> right. That, that was not me. And it took me a while to figure it out. When I first retired, I was writing my first book, The Ordinary Spaceman. So that consumed almost all my energy. So I woke up and I had breakfast and coffee. And then I went to my uh, computer and I worked on the book. Um, right. But I always took time to go to the gym. That's important to me. Um, and then the rest of my, so my days were typically booked till about one or two okay. with stuff. And then I, then I piddled till, <laughs> till Sue got home and then from work. And then I'm saying, when's dinner? Where are we having? <laughs> right, right, right. And she said, you didn't make it? <laughs> <laughs> what have you been doing since when? You've been piddling, haven't you, Clay? Yes. <laughs> Oh, man. Okay. Uh, so when you were in the International Space Station, uh, I, I finished reading your book, uh, It's a Question of Space, which you compiled everybody's question. Where were you answering these? They were online somewhere. Yeah, it's a website called Quora, Q-U-O-R-A dot com. Okay. And um, somehow I got onto it in 2013. Somebody said, hey, you should do this. And I actually liked it. I had fun answering the some of the decent questions. I mean, there's some nutballs out there, but right, right. Uh, but I had a lot of fun, and after a few years of that, I thought, well, m maybe this would make a great book. And so I was able to publish the first one, and I'd like to publish volume two, but I can't convince the publisher to to uh, step off the cliff with me. Well, tell them I I really enjoyed it, and there were questions I didn't even know I had. When I was reading it, I was like, wait a second, that's a really good question. And then I was just, it was like a page turner. I was taking it to the toilet and everything. So I was like, what What are you doing? Um, there you go. I really enjoyed it. So I'm now just reading uh, the first one that you wrote, The Ordinary Spaceman. So if I ask anything that you've already covered, I apologize. I'll just uh, refer you to a chapter. Just be like, page 172, read it and come back to me. Um so you were up there with uh, in the ISS with two other guys, is that correct, for the most part? Two Russian cosmonauts, yeah. And they spoke English, so you guys could, and you had a, a little bit of Russian in you, right? Yeah, Oleg was a really good English speaker, Oleg Kotov. On and an then okay, go Fyodor, ahead. Fyodor Yuchikin, he spoke English about as well as I spoke Russian, so we spoke a lot of Runglish. You just said a name, but I thought you said if you order the chicken. <laughs> well, that was his nickname was Chokin, your chicken. So his last name is <laughs> your chicken. And when he first flew with NASA, he got the call sign, the nickname Chokin. 
So he was known as choking your cheekin. And then, <laughs> <laughs> did he find the humor in that? Oh yeah, yeah. He, okay, he had, good. A, he had a good sense of humor. I think they had to explain it to him, but you know, he was on David Letterman one time. The crew was because he was doing his top ten or something, and there was a a humorous story about Fyodor Yurchikin and powdered lamb shanks. <laughs> okay. So you Google that. I'll have to look back at that one. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it kind of struck me like you're up there. You were two other guys that you had met them prior, or they were already up there when you got up there. I'd met them prior. We had trained together um, in Houston and Russia. So the way the schedule was set up, they were going to launch on a Russian Soyuz uh-huh. and be there. And then I was I would saying that word wrong in my head when I was shuttle. reading. What's that? I was saying that word wrong in my head while I was reading. <laughs> I think I, Soyuz is what I kept saying in my head. Soyuz? Soyuz, yeah. That's the it Russian means, space means Union, yeah. It's from the you know USSR. Uh-huh. <laughs> but they were there about a month and a half before I got there. Okay. And so then once I arrived, we spent the majority of that five months together, and then they left early. And because I was going to come home on a shuttle that would come later. Right. So then did, did they drop off other guys or were you up there alone? No, it was always the three of us. So, you know, well, when they left they, early. Yeah. They, a, another Soyuz crew came up uh, three weeks prior to them leaving. OK. And then they left. So it's usually, you know, you have three people up then three more come then three go down and three more come and three go down. That's how they used to do it. Now it's six. So you have six up and then three more come uh-huh. and three leave. Right. And three more come. So it's. It's an up and down kind of thing. And you, as the United States uh, counterpart of the ISS, w did you have any things that you were doing together with them? Or, or was it they, like they had their agenda and you had your agenda and you kind of were separate and then eventually you'd meet in the galley for dinner or something? A combination of both. So <clears throat> typically most days they were doing their thing and I was doing my thing. But there were times... For example, if we were doing a spacewalk together, uh -huh. where they would need to do their thing with me. So we would prepare for the spacewalk, execute the spacewalk, clean up from the spacewalk. So those were times when we worked together. Back in those days, there was a lot more partnership, work together. Clay helped the Russians, the Russians helped Clay. Today, with a six-person crew, there's a lot less of that. The Russians are doing their thing, and the Americans are doing their thing. Right. Does it... I uh, does it ever feel like there are secrets up there, or is it all pretty open? They, you don't ever like walk over to the Russian sector and they like turn their backs and they like cover what they're doing. Sorry, <laughs> well, the only chat. the only thing is that um, <clears throat> that I would ask about Putin during dinner conversations, right? Okay, say, yeah. What do you guys think of this Putin guy? And they would they would not say a word. They would ask me about <laughs> the time. They would ask me about George Bush and how he was as a president, you know, and I'd tell them what I thought, what I knew, what right. I'd heard, right? But if I asked them about Putin, it was... Well, yeah, isn't the ISS, isn't it? I mean, you, there's no private conversations up there, aren't there? i got to imagine there are microphones and video cameras everywhere. 
Well, there was one under the lamp, you know, you had, there, somebody had put a little spy device under the lamp, and then there was one in the toilet, and, 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 and I think there was one in my sleep station, you know, so they could hear everything I was saying. Ah! <clears throat> For real, though, they, don't they have, they don't have monitoring systems? I gotta imagine you'd they be do, up there. But they gotta, you gotta key the mic, right? Oh, really? You can make it, you can make it so that if you just yell something, they might be able to hear you on the speakers, but the station's pretty loud inside, so it's not a good way to communicate. So you grab the microphone, you key the microphone, okay. and you say, hey guys, I need to talk, and then... Interesting, yeah, I, I guess I was operating under the assumption that they just have video cam just for your safety and for their knowledge of what's going on just video cameras and microphones at all time and like you could be you know <laughs> tightening something and all of a sudden they're like hey clay uh don't over tighten that or whatever it is like at well, any time you. there are video cameras and they they can call me they can say station this is houston on space to ground two okay right? and i hear that and i go okay the phone's ringing Right, so right. I go pick, pick up the mic and I go, Houston, this is station, go ahead, right? But I got to key the mic to talk. They have to key the mic to bring it up and it comes out over the speaker. But it, it's not like they're listening to your every move. Now, when the video cameras are on, if you, the person on the station, say, come aboard, uh -huh. you have my permission to come aboard, then that camera can be made live. Oh, okay. And that's what I like. That was my favorite time because... I would do stuff to the camera to try to engage those guys. Right, right. Yeah, I got to imagine, what what were the years that you were up there? What was the five-month stint? 2007. 2007. So with advances in, you know, just what we've gotten, like, I don't even know if Skype, it was probably fresh in 2007. And, and like FaceTime and iPhones, do you ha do you know has it has it become even more so invasive up there, or do they have more technology up there that allows them to communicate with land? I feel like if I went up there now, I'd say, well, can I just bring my phone? I mean, do we got Wi-Fi up there? What, what's going on? Uh, yes, they have Wi-Fi. We didn't have it when I was there. Yeah. Um, in well, 2007, there was no social media per se. Right, right. You had talked a little bit about Twitter. Uh huh. There was no. So when I went up in, gosh, 2010, Twitter was starting to become a deal. But yeah. I, but the computers on the station were so slow. They actually had internet, but they were so slow that I couldn't tweet. So I would email. <laughs> I would write a tweet on email. And send it to the ground, and then they would tweet it out on my account. Nowadays, right. they can do it themselves. It's much faster. It's still not very fast, but it's faster than it was. Mm -hmm. And so they have access to the internet. They can search the internet and buy their spouse gifts, and and they can, you know, go to websites they want to mess around with and stuff. But we didn't have any of that. Right. It, it's so weird when you say things like the uh, the internet's still not very fast. It, it feels for for whatever reason in my monkey brain that doesn't understand how technology works, I feel like, well, I'm in space. It should be faster. I'm up here next to the satellite that's sending it. Well, you're next to them only by about 250 more miles. So, you know, those we're up here, and those satellites are way up here. So Sure. But you're, you're like most people, you think it should be fast, right? Well, the problem with the Internet is they're worried about hackers. Right, right, right. So if astronauts are surfing the web, they're worrying about getting hacked. So it took them a while to figure out how they might protect that integrity on the Internet. And so now they've 
made it safer and and the station has more Wi-Fi capability, right? In in the first part, when I was there in 2007, we had a little bit of Wi-Fi within uh, the station, but all of our computers, in order to work, they had to be Ethernet connected, right? Right, right. So it took a while for us to do to get to high definition cameras and stuff, and yeah. then to get Wi-Fi. So they had some of that when I went back in 2010, but I was a shuttle crew member and had way too much to do, so I couldn't really mess with any of that. Yeah, when you when you go up to set up, uh, you know, say the new HD cameras or something like that, do they send a guy that that's his specialty? They've they've like worked with him to go up there and set that kind of stuff up. Like some of you guys have a science background, other guys know how to command the shuttle. That I mean, they, they send up specific guys. Like, do they send a Comcast guy up there? Like, okay, I'm gonna need more cable. I needed Larry the Cable Guy up there to help me out <laughs> with that, but but no. Um, typically, each one of us has some form of expertise, like. Me, I could bale hay and shell corn and scoop manure. <laughs> and that was my expertise. Very on the valuable space. up there. Yes, yes, very valuable. Um, but you basically are trained to do those tasks. So you become an air conditioner, toilet replacement, uh, cook, bottle washer, scientist. You, you kind of have to do a little of it all. But you have the ground as your asset to speak with if you get stuck, you know, if you get in trouble. They're your YouTube videos. You say how exactly? Yeah, exactly. Oh, you gotta use the five eighths wrench. I don't know why every time I say you're doing something up there, you're tightening something with a wrench. <laughs> I don't know why. Oh, I did. I did a lot of that. Yeah. I mean, there's so you're doing installing new things, taking out old things, maintaining, repairing things, replacing things. Um, you know, during the time I lived there, it was mostly a building phase. Now. It's a the building has been built, the laboratory has been completed, and now they're utilizing the laboratory. So they're doing more experiments and less building and maintaining. Right, right. Yeah, that's that's where my mind went every time you talked about a spacewalk. Is, mm -hmm. is that what you were doing most of the time? As you were replacing something or outside of the space station? Yeah, replacing or adding. Uh, in 2007, we did a lot of adding of things. Okay. You know, here, I got to put this and do this so that when the next mission comes, they can plug in the thing they're bringing. But nowadays, with it all being built, the spacewalks outside are for maintenance. And then, like, for example, they've replaced the, all the old batteries with new, better designed, new batteries, um, that kind of thing. They don't, they don't go outside unless they really need to. Right, right. Does that disappoint some guys that go up there like, I just want to go out and run around? Oh, yeah. I mean, doing a spacewalk for me was one of the coolest things I ever did, and having been able to do six of them over time is really cool. Um, they, they've had a lot of spacewalks recently. I mean, you heard about the two women that went out and did a space, couple spacewalks together. Right, and, right. Yeah. So it kind of goes in waves. You know, you need a bunch of them, and then it dies down for a while, and then you need a bunch of them, and it dies down. You're out there outside of the ISS. And I know, I apologize if some of this is, like, infiltrated by Hollywood, but, you know, that you're always tethered, right? There's no this George Clooney moment where he's out there just spraying his little, you know, whatever he's got out there, the aerosol can that shoots him around. Well, that scene was based on an actual device that we used where you weren't tethered. You were actually flying that jetpack around. Right. But not, not like he did. But 
typically you're right. If you're close to the shuttle or close to the station, you better be tethered because if you fall off, it would not be a great day for you. Yeah, because that thing's moving at what did you? What was the speed that it's flying around the Earth? Well, everything's going at five miles a second. So you're relative to the station, you're moving five miles a second too. But then if you create an impulse that makes you fall off in a different direction, now you're moving at five miles a second, but you're also moving away from it. So right. now you got to get back to it. So it's a it's a unique physics problem. Right, because, yeah, you're going around the Earth, uh, What what is it, 16 times a day that you orbit? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you see the sun and the moon 16 times. Yeah, sunrise, sunset, and... Yep, 16 times a day. Holy smokes. Is that hard to wrap your brain around? Like, did you ever freak out? Did you ever have a moment where you're like, I might lose my mind up here? Uh, no, um, but <laughs> that's because most of the windows look at the earth, and so you don't really think about it. It's not like <clears throat> you're in your house in your office today where the windows are right in front of you, and if the sun came up and the sun went down and the sun came up and the sun went down, it would kind of drive you crazy because uh-huh. your brain thinks I'm supposed to sleep when it's dark and be up when it's light. But we didn't see that typically because we didn't have windows that looked like that. Yeah, yeah. Man, that's just a crazy thing to have experienced. When you retired in 2013, was there any sense of, well, how am I going to be satisfied here on Earth now? Oh, yeah. That, that's a, in The Ordinary Spaceman, that's part of a, a chapter toward the end of the book is, is how difficult it was for me. It, you yeah. know, it's like... I, I write about how it's like being a major league baseball player and you've come to the stadium to see your name in the fourth slot on the lineup card every day for how many years. Right. And you don't see your name on the card and then you go to the manager and he says, well, you know, I'm giving you a day of rest. Okay, no problem, boss. And then the next day you come in and you're not on the card again and you go to him and he says, well, I thought you might need two days. And then as it goes... Yeah. And you're not seeing your, then you start to go, what the hell's going on? And then when you got to think about retiring and totally changing what you did, your dream career, right, of an astronaut for 15 years, and now it's gone. Now right. what do you do? And that, yeah, that was hard for me. Yeah. So at that time, was that when you came back the second time and you thought maybe you'd be going back up? Is that what? Yeah, I actually did. I was hoping I would get another shot. Uh, I figured. Based on previous conversations, I wasn't going to fly on the station again, uh-huh. but I thought I might get another shuttle opportunity, but then they canceled the shuttle program. So then the handwriting's on the wall, right? Right, you, right. You got the station, and I'm probably not going to get to go there because uh, I pissed off too many people. But then, you know, there's no other program for a long time. So how long do I wait? You know, how long do I tread water in, in an environment that wasn't really good for right. me? Okay. Okay. How, um, you know, how many guys, how, what, what's the list up to now of guys that have been to space? I mean, we're not talking about, it's hundreds, right? It's maybe it's, not it's even. Like, I'd throw out the number 575-ish. Okay. okay. I don't think it's, it hasn't hit 600 yet, I don't think. So with such an elite group, and and maybe, like, I, I've met your wife, Susan, she's very nice, and she works uh, at the space station there. <laughs> she's watching, she's watching Smile. Space Center. Space, space Center. Um, how many times have you had to break out that card? Well, as, as a man who's been to space, like, to win an argument or to, like, pontificate upon your opinion. 
uh, like zero time. She knows probably as much, maybe more <laughs> about the space program than I do. <laughs> you, you, you never tried that Trump? No, no, never tried to be like, you know what? Well, when we were in space. I usually just say, yes, dear. That's a good plan. That's a good plan. You figured it out. <laughs> we're just monkeys banging with wrenches. We're not special. Oh, That's man. right. What, in your mind, do, do you know what's happening up there now? Or do you have any sense of, I, I got to feel like, and maybe this is directly out of Hollywood as well, but, uh, you know, for the guys that are up there currently living on the ISS, are they looking down at Earth going, there's this plague going across the world are they ever kind of like well what happens if things go really bad down there and then we're just up here um i don't think they think that way i think they understand what's going on on earth and they're they're kept aware of the situation um but i don't think they're ever going to get to the point where you know the earth is so bad that they're not coming home or or their missions delayed they could have a delay i guess but I think NASA's doing everything they can to keep on their schedule and to protect the people that are launching and then protect the people that come home such that we can still maintain that presence in orbit. Right, right. Now, and I should have asked this a second ago, I don't sound like a chipmunk, do I? <laughs> no, you don't, Dale. <laughs> okay, because I, I did... Uh, I did a podcast a few days ago, and there was something going on with my microphone, and I sound like a chipmunk. Luckily, the guy said it before we even started, uh, <laughs> but I, I had to like change a setting, and I just wanted to make sure it didn't revert. Um, yeah, you're up there. When you're up there, you get news separate from what NASA tells you, correct? If you have a little bit of internet now? Yeah, now, yes. When I was up there... Um... They, I could ask for things like the Houston Chronicle newspaper, but the way I got that information was not really uh, like you might think on your internet today. Yeah. They would have, they would have to get the information and they'd have to turn it into a file to send it to me so I could read it. Um, but I talked to my wife daily so I could kind of get a sense of if anything weird was going on or, right, or right. You know, if there was a virus like this, I would probably get more information from my wife. Uh, but in today's world, uh, there's oftentimes, uh, there's a daily summary that gets sent up and it talks to you about mostly stuff on station, but they could add things like, hey, here's a coronavirus update, for example, right. such that the crew maintains some amount of awareness. But when you can call your family or you can call anyone you want on the planet, it, you don't really, you can get your news in other forms, I guess. Right, yeah. And that was uh, 2007. But like, if you go back even further in NASA's mm -hmm. timeline, when guys are up there and their only lifeline, and I got to imagine their lifeline to Houston was even worse of a connection, you know, they just even yeah. from a phone call perspective, I wonder what those guys must have gone through mentally to not know what's going on on Earth, especially, you know, when there are tensions with other countries, you know. Does, does that mm -hmm. ever go through your mind, or are you just so mission-focused that you don't even think about that as, as something that could go wrong on Earth, and you're well, just kind of a separate? I think... You're pretty mission focused, but you know when 9/11 happened, there was a single American in space, uh -huh. and he actually flew over New York and saw the cloud of smoke and took photographs of oh, it. Right? Oh man! 
because he's the only American not on the planet at the time, uh, he used to communicate the normal uh, space to ground loops, we call it, to communicate with Earth. But he also used the ham radio, which we had at the time, which is somewhat uh, out of fashion now. Uh-huh. But he could pick up that ham radio and he could talk to hammies all across the country if he wanted to for, for short periods of time and get information. So um, we're much better prepared and much better able to communicate in these days. Is that any part of your training is dealing with emotions of how you might feel if things are going on down here to just like stay mission focused? Is that do the, is there a psychological section to the training for NASA? That's a good question, and my answer is always the same, and, and yes and no. Um, they, NASA, will argue that they give you plenty of psychological training, but they do it by putting you in what we call extreme environments. So right. I, I did winter survival in Russia. I did winter survival in Wyoming. I did winter survival in Canada. I did regular survival in Wyoming. I did water survival in Russia, right? So they put you in these. I lived underwater uh, off the coast of Key Largo for three right, weeks. Right. They put you in environments that force you to deal with the psychological aspects of what's going on. Mm-hmm. They do not, well, they do a little bit. They sit you down. For example, I got a couple briefings from a psychologist, right? A military psychologist who went through his PowerPoint charts. You know, and the bottom line was, don't count on anybody but yourself. Okay, wow. You know, that's not, I mean, that's great advice, but, you know, that doesn't really help me deal with the psychological aspects of all that. That just tells you not to trust anyone else. Yeah, and then you figure a couple years before I went into training, or maybe a year before I went into training, Columbia happened, right? Right. And so now you throw that into your head. And you're saying, well, I'm going to go off the planet on the same on a shuttle just like those guys died on, mm-hmm. and all that goes into your head. But nobody really helps you deal with that, right? Except for when they force you to do those exercises, where you're getting some psychological training just by being in that environment. So I think that's one of the things. If we're going to go to Mars, we have to do better with that part of it. Right. Right. Wow. Yeah. And you mentioned in your book. Um, the uh, it's a question of space. You somebody asked you, you know, how you dealt with knowing the uh, the, the Challenger. You know, like were, I think they asked, were, were you scared when you were launching? And you kind of said, no, not really. I was, you know, so excited about this. But that I can't imagine that certainly crossed your mind at least beforehand. If not, when you're in the seat going up, I mean, cross your mind beforehand. Do you? I mean, you get your affairs in order. You like, okay, this let's plan for the worst case and hope for the best. Well, you'll read in The Ordinary Spaceman, there's a chapter about that. And, you know, in, in order to prepare for my first launch and my and my second launch, I wrote a letter to my family in that they weren't going to get or weren't going to open right. unless I died. And so as you're walking around the space center a couple days before your launch and you have idle time and your mind starts to wander, those are the kind of things that creeped into my head. Yeah. But once you once you get on the vehicle, you're focused on your job. I don't want to mess up because I don't want to be the guy that messed up this task or stopped this from happening, right? So we're counting on each of us to do our jobs. And so your focus overwhelms all that other stuff. 
Yeah. Was uh, was there any humor in those letters that you wrote at all? And do they still exist? The, uh, they're in the book. They're, oh, those letters are in the book. Okay, you'll, so they got to see it. Yeah, you'll get to read it. Okay. Because I can imagine, like, I deal with, like, I deal with sadness and worry with humor. And right. so I feel like I would do something dramatic. Like, if it were me, it would be a video. But if you are watching this, then I am already dead. Because <laughs> I've always wanted to make one of those videos. <laughs> well, you could do that. I mean, I, I could have done that, too, I guess, with the technology, right? Now you can just hold your phone up and do it. But back <laughs> in 2007, it was a little more difficult. So uh, I chose to write it, right? Now I'm a, I'm a writer. So... <laughs> It was better for me to put those thoughts down on paper for them. Right. That had to have been an emotional exercise to sit down and write your goodbye. It was. And, and when I read it, if I go back and reread it, it's still emotional. So, uh, you know, it's it, it, you're in a spot that most people don't consider themselves in. Sure. Yeah. You're you're contemplating your mortality and. I always wonder, like, and you said you go back, you read that, it it chokes you up or something. I always wonder how singers and songwriters do that. Yeah. Like, how does Eric Clapton ever sing Tears in Heaven live? Like, yeah. that would just be me weeping on stage for seven minutes. That's what that song would be called. Yeah, I totally get it. It's When I speak, it's hard. Sometimes people will ask me a certain question. And now it gets better with time, right? But mm -hmm. when they ask me about being a family escort for the Columbia families or right. ask me about my kids and what happened to them on launch day or, or this letter that, that we're talking about, those things are tough. And uh, sometimes I don't do a very good job of, of dealing with the emotional part of it. But that's yeah. me. That's just me. How old were your kids when you went up? Uh, the first time... Cole was 10 and Sutton was 6. Okay, 10 and 6. Because I know, as a comedian, you know, I travel, I, I, I leave for three, four days at a time. And it's always kind of like a bummer to say goodbye to my kids. And I always feel bad, you know, is this going to affect them? What was going through your mind? And did you ever see any, like, it sounds like you've got a great family life now. But was there ever any question, like, my kids are 10 and 6 at this time. Is this the right thing for me to go up there and be away from them for five months yeah it was hard um you'll read about this in the book too uh, <laughs> i'll come back after the book no no it's okay because this gives you a little bit of insight and then you go oh that's right. what he but uh when i first started to train sutton was two and cole was six yeah. and that was about the time columbia happened and cole cole knew uh, what was happening right oh man sutton, i know and so those were, then dad started to travel to Russia and I was gone for a month at yeah, a time. Yeah. And then I'd come home and we'd reintegrate a little bit and then I'd have to leave again. And you know, it got where Sutton would grab my leg at the door when the car pulled up. Oh to take no. Yeah. Yeah. That was really hard. And so I spent my, my ritual was once I got out the door and into the car, I cried for a while and then I'd settle down, but then I'd get to the airport. Once I checked in and sat down in the airport, I got my phone out and I called back to the house. Yeah. And told him I loved him and, and then I would cry again. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'd get on the plane and then I had a 16 hour <laughs> transit, you know, to get to Russia. So it was, it could be really difficult. Right, right. I can't imagine. And it's a good thing that when you were up in space that you had the ability to call back and talk every day. Yeah. And we had some of that in Russia. Um, 
it was a struggle in Russia because the equipment didn't always work, right? Back then, you didn't have an integrated camera and audio system in your in your computer, right? So you had to get a, a camera and you had to hook it to your computer and you had to load the software. Right, and, right. You know, you had to have a microphone and all that. And it never worked for a long time. It, it was really sucky to try to talk to my family in Houston. But when we finally got it to work, it really helped a lot. At least it helped me. Did it help them? Probably not. <laughs> when when you got back, did you, you know, what was your interaction like with the kids when you got back after being gone for five months? Was there, I mean, sometimes my kids come back and they don't know how to look at me and I've only been gone for four days. They're just yeah. kind of like, oh, he's here now? Yeah. Who's that guy again? <laughs> right. With, they... Was there ever any discussion with them, like how, like that, where they could just unload their feelings on you? Yeah, we tried, or I tried to, to do that. Um, the The best exchange was after I'd flown the first time, and we were up in Cole or Sutton's bedroom wrestling on the floor, right? Uh -huh. And I finally got the kids, especially Cole, because he was ten. I got him to talk about the experience of, of launch and got him to share his feelings. And it was pretty emotional. I uh, bet, yeah. You know, and, and did it help him or hurt him? You know, that I worry about that, right? I worry about, did what I do for my career, you know, I know it shortened or it, it stopped my wife's ascent, you know, within the NASA ranks, right? She became a part-time employee to take care of the family while I was doing all this stuff, right? So she heard her own career sure. for me to help me. Now the kids, who knows, you know, if, if they won't sit and tell you exactly what they remember and how they felt, you really don't know how it affected them for the most part, but I'm sure it did. I'm sure it has some lasting effect on, on them. Right. Yeah, it's got to be, it's a hard thing, and I see sacrifices here on my home front, but yeah, you mentioned Susan had to, like, put a pause on her career. It's hard for the person that makes the assist for the guy, you know, it's hard to be the Scottie Pippen who threw the ball to Michael, because Michael dunked it, and yeah, they both got championship rings, but it's like, well, maybe I could have dunked it, too. Yeah, yeah, and, it, and I think my wife's an incredible human, and uh, and she knew what my dream was when we met and started to date and get, got married. And so she was with me during that time uh, that I was trying to become an astronaut. And so once, it's it's funny, we watched uh, the Nebraska Educational TV did a documentary on me in 2008 after I came back from space called Homemade Astronaut. Okay. And we watched, the three of us watched that last night. And one of the lines that Susan says in the movie is the day I got the call to tell that I was gonna be an astronaut, she said, our lives changed in that moment, and they certainly did. Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, when when you got that call, that was you had been applying to be an astronaut. You already worked there, is that correct? Yes. And yeah, I worked at NASA as an engineer for 15 years and applied for 15 years, and and we got the call in 1998 after applying 15 years in a row. So. Oh, talk about that 15 years 14 straight no's <laughs> yeah. and was it just like i'm gonna do this in perpetuity i'm gonna do this forever i'm gonna apply every year until i get aged out <laughs> is that what you somewhat it was like 
what I tell people is it's easy to apply. It's hard to get selected. Right. So once I'd made that initial foray into the application world and I'd gathered most of the data that I needed, which is really the hardest part, right? You have to, how many, where did you live for the last 30 years? You know, where'd you go to school? What were your grades? You know, all that. You gather all that. And then every year it was just an update process. So Clay, what have you done since last year that is worthy (laughs) of putting on your application? And a lot of times I hadn't done much. And so fortunately they didn't select every year. So being rejected 14 times is a little bit of a misnomer in that they didn't apply, they didn't select actual astronauts every year, but they they required you to put your application in every year and get it approved, otherwise you'd be out of their sights. So I did apply 14 straight times with rejection every time until I got the 15th. Was there anything that you did over that course that you were like, that probably really impressed them? That, that's <laughs> the one that they saw, they saw that, they go, oh, did you see that last year Clay went skydiving seven times? I got my wife pregnant. Um, <laughs> They're like, finally, okay, we understand now. <laughs> He's was- you know, the, the things I did, I got my private pilot's license. Big deal. Most of the astronauts have their private pilot that license. That sounds like a good checkbox. Yeah, it is. But it's not required. Yeah. But it's something they'll go, oh, okay, good. Um, I got my scuba certification. Susan and I got certified together. Um, so that's another thing that most astronauts do. Um the only thing I had going for me that no one else did was I was a college basketball referee. Okay. And that was different, right? It was something that no one else did that I know of. I think I'm the only uh, astronaut to ever officiate a Division One men's college basketball game. Really? Yeah. Do you, do you still do that at all? No, I gave that up a couple of years ago. I, I, I just... My heart wasn't in it anymore, and I didn't have the right attitude anymore. Okay. Uh, and so, and and I wasn't doing college anymore at that time. I once I became an astronaut, I had to give up college. Right, right. Travel and stuff. But uh, I went back to the high school ranks to officiate for a few years, and I really enjoyed it. But then I got to the point where I wasn't preparing like I should. I wasn't knowing the rules like I should. I wasn't having the attitude with the kids and the coaches that I should, so I, I had to get out. You ever have a you ever have a missed call bother you? Oh yeah. Oh I can, Where you're yeah. like, oh I got that one wrong, but you couldn't change your mind because you were like, I've already made the call. They're arguing, but I can't. Yeah, I've had several. <laughs> <laughs> I uh um little league baseball for a short period of time and I remember the first time I got behind home plate I had already done the field a couple of games but I was now behind the plate and the first pitch came in and I forgot I had a job I forgot I was supposed to call it and and the ball it couldn't have been more perfect but like my instinct I just go ball and the batter even turned to me and he goes really I was like ball don't question me son yeah I know I've been there that's good to hear but you can't change your mind as a ref right that shows no. weakness. Well, I, you know, the, the one that sticks in my mind the most, I can tell you in great detail, it was a triple overtime, and we were uh. in 90, 93 feet from the basket, and the kid dove for the ball, and another kid reached in to get the ball, and he, he didn't really touch him, and I go, foul! I'm <laughs> like, oh! Oh, what's, do you remember the schools? Some oh, listeners yeah. going to be sitting I, in I there, do. sitting up like, I knew it! I do. I remember them. And, uh, you know, I, I replay that one in my head a lot because I, you know, 
I was a young referee then, and if I was, I could have just said, hey, I could have called the coaches over and said, stop. We're not, I, I blew that one. My bad. It was a terrible call. <laughs> I'm not going to, I'm going to, I'm not going to let this game end on something like that. So we're going to give you guys back the ball because you have the ball when the, the issue started, then we're going to play from there. And that probably would have been better, but I didn't do that. And, you know, right. it got worse. <laughs> and it got worse. <laughs> Oh yeah, that would be a unique thing to. I feel like that would give you some level of skill as an astronaut to be to have dealt with in-game like mm -hmm. high-pressure situations. Even though you're not the guy taking the shot, you still feel that mounting pressure. You're gonna like my book, The Ordinary Spaceman. I'm excited. I'm excited <laughs> about it. I, I got plenty of toilet time. I got. I, I like. I like reading. As I don't know what it's been about this quarantine, but like I pick up books more right now. Is there anything yeah. you're doing more of that you like? Did you have something you're like? Well, I'm gonna improve myself at this time, or I'm gonna read more. I'm gonna watch everything on the DVR. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm reading a little bit more. Uh, typically, I read when I travel, so I'm not traveling, but. Uh, I'm writing more. I, I'm on the computer and answering those Quora.com type questions more frequently. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to write another children's book. So, but yeah, I could do I could do way better at improving myself. <laughs> What's the most often repeated question? Is it that you get on that? Cora or or when you're when you're giving a talk what's what do you find people are most curious about with your space travel um typically potty ops right uh, and then <laughs> zero gravity what's it like to live in zero gravity and how do you go to the bathroom in space those are probably the two uh biggies that was a question <laughs> i didn't know i had but when you talked about pooping in space i was like wow that would be okay interesting yeah. And you will read about that in the chapter called The Void of Outer Space. <laughs> uh, I think I would just hold it. I think I'd hold it for five months. <laughs> no, you wouldn't. <laughs> it's really funny because when you get in zero gravity, right, it's, a, it's a, amazing how your body works. Because when I was in zero gravity, I knew exactly when it was time to go number two. I knew exactly. There was no... There was no, uh, maybe I can get by for another 30, 40 minutes. No, it was now. <laughs> so how, how do you prepare for that when you got to do an eight-hour spacewalk? Diaper. No, is that real? Yeah, that's real. <laughs> and so but, uh, did you go in the diaper? Yeah, the first step is you try to go before you go out. Right, right? yeah. Before you get in the suit, you want to take that nice, if you can do it, when you wake up in the morning, let her fly. And then put the diaper on and hope that you don't have to let it fly for a while. <laughs> Dude, a diaper like, because have you ever tried to, as an adult to pee yourself? Mm -hmm. it, it's almost impossible. Like people say when you're at the ocean, you got to go. They're just like, just go in there and go. And I, I don't like that. I, I've only done that like once or twice in my life. But when I go out there, it's hard. I have to pee and I'm trying to pee the ocean and I can't. Uh -huh. Well... I give my Iowa State freshmen a homework assignment, right? I tell them to go home, put a diaper on, lay in their bathtub, and take a six-pack of beverages of their choice and drink them and then try to pee their diaper, right? Because it, it is an art form. Because you've been told your entire <laughs> life since you wore a diaper that you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to hold it until you get to the toilet yeah, and yeah. do your TT and 
cleanup and all that, right? So now you're a 30-year-old adult putting a diaper on again, and somebody tells you to pee in, and it's very contrary to what you're, you know. So, yeah, it takes a little practice, but you can do it. Oh, I'll work on that. I'll, <laughs> I'll pick up a six-pack next time we make our quarantine uh, <laughs> run to the grocery store. I'll be like, pick up some beer, Tom. Why wait? Do it now. It <laughs> um, is every every chapter I feel like in uh, in the book talked about. Um, you know, somebody asked, you know, what what are the qualifications to be an astronaut? And you kept saying, well, do this, just apply. Do this, just apply. But I, I'm sitting there reading this as a 37 year old, going, well, I'm too old, right? No, is that not, not right? No, you can be. Uh, John Glenn was 77 when he flew a second time, so that's yeah, kind that's of John Glenn. Like I know I mean, you let Jordan on the court now. You're right, exactly. But there, you can still apply, right? <clears throat> Just because you're 37, that's kind of the the midpoint of astronaut selection. They're not they don't pick a lot of young people that you got to have enough experience in life to get to a certain level. Okay, that's that's when they begin to seriously look at you. So. You, you could be the second comedian after me in space. <laughs> uh, I, well, I, you know, I, I had no plans of applying, but then when you kept saying apply, apply, I was like, well, what am I doing here? I should fill out the form. You should. It's easy to apply and hard to get selected. Hard to get selected. Well, I just got to be a college referee and I feel like they'll take a look. <laughs> I don't know. They may look at you and go, oh, he's from Nebraska. We tried that once and it didn't work, work out the first time. <laughs> we don't need any corn farmers yet. We'll let them know when we start to colonize Mars. There you go. Exactly. Which, by the way, how far do you think we are out from doing something like that, start setting up a colony? Has it already uh -huh. happened and you're not allowed to tell me? See, I knew it. He's well, looking at me funny. <laughs> uh, Mars is a ways away, I think. I I'd like to see us go to the moon now. We're supposed to go to the moon in 2024. Okay. I don't know if we can do that, pull it off or not. But if we do, I would like to see us establish a colony on the surface of the moon where 15, 20 people live and work for a while so we can figure out what we need to do before we go to Mars. For example, it's like when the pioneers traveled, you know, from the East Coast, Plymouth Rock, and they started to move west. Yeah. They, they got to a place that's now known as Nebraska, and they go, oh, this is really flat. Right, right. <laughs> we could maybe live here, right? <laughs> and plus, it was going to be too hard to keep going, so a lot of people settled in Nebraska, and they learned to live off the land. And that's the key. If you go to the moon or Mars, you got to figure out, everybody says, oh, yeah, there's oxygen there, and there's water at the poles, and, and, and we can make uh, this, this really cool concrete out of the, the lunar surface and build buildings and build habitats. Oh, yeah, 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 whatever. How are you going to do that? Right. Right? When the settlers stopped in Nebraska, how did they figure all that out, right? They had to figure out how to trap a river to turn the grist mill. They had to get uh, animals to pull a plow that they fashioned out of metal somehow. They had to figure out how to build a sod house, which then led to wooden houses. You know, you got to learn how to do it. And that's the part I worry about. We, we know that we can do it. We think it's theoretically possible, but you have to learn how, the methodology to get you from A to B. Okay, so uh, pardon my ignorance, but uh, Mars is always the one because it, it, it is closest to Earth. 
in terms of like how it, it has water and you said oxygen. I didn't know that. You mm-hmm. ish ish. You kind of well, waving your hand. Not really. Well, th- think about this: the rock and its geological composition. There's lots of stuff in there, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Maybe water. Maybe iron. Maybe the elements carbon. I don't know. I'm not a geologist, but it's potentially there. And the and the people that are smart can tell us that these things are there, available to us. Okay. But just like on Earth, when fossil fuels were made available to us or known to us, we had to figure out how to get them from the ground, right? Mm-hmm. Into that little thing we stick into the side of our car and squeeze the handle and gas comes out, right? Right, yeah, yeah. Right, so from those... From A to B, lots of stuff has to happen. Lots of technology has to be developed to get that fossil fuel from the ground to the refinery in a pipe as gasoline to put in your car. Is is there a division of NASA that's currently working on that? I'm sure there are. Uh, NASA's pretty pretty broad in terms of what they do, and there's NASA centers all across the country that do different things. So yeah, I'm sure there are people looking at that, but. I won't be convinced until I see that they've involved John Deere and Caterpillar and Ditch Witch and right, right. You know, that's when I'll know that we're really moving forward. If in five years they say, "Okay, we've got the capability. We want to go build a colony on Mars, and we want to have a family up there," and your kids said, "Yeah, we're into it," and you and Susan said, "Yeah, we're into it." Would you consider being that family? If they, if my kids said they were into it, my wife said they were into it, maybe. Yeah. Uh, but I know my kids would never say they were into it, and I know my <laughs> wife would never say they were into it. So they might say, Dad, you're into it. Leave tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> See ya, Pops. <laughs> I don't need to hold your leg anymore. I've got my own thing. Plus, I hear the Internet's choppy up there. I can't binge Netflix. And is your life insurance policy paid up before you go? <laughs> that's, oh man, that's what I did when I first started traveling a lot. Somebody said to me, and my first kid was just born, and somebody said to me on the airplane, they go, oh man, he's only this old? So if you die, he'll never know who you were. And I, I panicked, and like I got, I landed wherever I was, and I got life insurance right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then then you start making videos, you know, to your kid, right? Hey, it's dad. If you're seeing this, I am already gone. (laughs) (laughs) You're a sick man, Nick Hoff. (laughs) Okay, uh, I got a few more questions for you. If you've got time, just just a couple more. Sure. Um, What is and this is I'm going to frame this. uh, What is a piece of unsolicited? If you could give anybody unsolicited advice and it could be a general thing that you'd tell any random person you met or somebody specific you'd give it to the president you could give it to your best friend who is constantly doing something wrong what's one piece of unsolicited advice that you would give to someone that you think is really good and it's not it's not with respect to astronauting right um it, it could be something that you learned up there, but it doesn't have to be. Just like in in your whole life, something that you've learned that you're like, man, if people just kind of followed this, I feel like we'd be a little better off. Well, I would say that you're just like me. Yeah? I came from small town Midwest, Nebraska, and was able to achieve the, the dream of living and working in space. 
So whatever your dream is, you're just like me. There's nothing that's stopping you from doing what you dream to do. You just have to work hard. You have to understand where you're headed. You have to understand that there's a little luck involved and mm-hmm. good timing. But for every kid in Nebraska, at least, they're just like me. Yeah. Yeah, because being an astronaut is one of those things that, like, you hear the word and you don't even really rationalize it, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm talking to you right now, and you're the first astronaut that I've known that I've talked to that, like, and you just kind of hear the word astronaut. It's almost like, almost like, you know, spy. It's like you don't really, you can't, it's not tangible. You don't feel like you could hold it in your hand, but yet it is, it is real. So, like, that, that is a real hurdle for people to say, well, I'm just, I'm just this guy that does this. Right. That's a whole thing. But it, you know, it's astronaut, firefighter, policeman, comedian, actor, uh, professional athlete. You know, they're just like me. If they have a dream and the willingness to go seek the skill set, um, you know, that guy, Mike Rowe, the dirtiest jobs right. guy, yeah. he talks about, you know, people say you got to have a passion for what you do. And, I, and I'm like him. I agree with that. But he says that's not what is the only thing that's required because if I want to be the greatest singer ever and I can't hold a tune, I can be so passionate about it. I'll never make it because I can't sing. So you have to, (laughs) you have to bring your passion with you and understand what your personal skill set is. Right. And so throw all that back into what I said, that they're just like me. If they understand their skill set and they bring their passion with them and they are just like me and work hard they can do amazing things. Yeah, that you mentioned. Uh, you know, a lot of guys that go into uh, being an astronaut come from like the Naval Academy or the Air Force because it, it does feel very regimented and and military in some respects. That's how I know that I I, I could never have been in the military because I always question authority. That's just who, like unless I'm the general marking out the orders, they would give me an order and I'd say, well, why 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 are we doing that? I I would have never survived boot camp. My own platoon would have killed me uh, <laughs> for making them do so many push-ups. Is that something that has to be like I I I gotta imagine that would stop me from being an astronaut. I feel like I would I would be. I would have too many questions. I would, why are we doing this? Why, why do we do it that way? Why don't we do it this way? Is there room for that there? There's a, there's a little room for that. Um, you know, we have militaristic astronauts and civilian astronauts. I was a civilian and I did ask why, and yeah. it got me in trouble later. Now part <laughs> of it, and you'll read about it in the ordinary spaceman that, you know, there's a couple chapters about that situation, but part of it is when I asked why, I could have asked why differently or more effectively. Right. And so that's on me. But you're exactly right. We need people who question authority and question why we're doing it, but you have to do it in the right way and you have to do it with the right intent. Sure. So, because there's lots of ways to do things that, and then like I tell the kids at Iowa State is sometimes the boss has information they're privy to that you don't. And the boss makes a decision based on that information they have that you don't have yet. And so you're asking why, why, why? Well, they may not be ready or able yet to share that information with you. Right. So you you have to cut them some slack in that regard. 
Uh, you said, you know, maybe not be able to tell you, are there things in regards to space travel that are, like, national secrets? Like, without giving no. us specifics, it's not no. like it's not like the no. military where, like, well, we can't tell you why you're going there. Right. Um, you know, in, in the NASA world, I used to have top secret clearance when I was younger. Okay. But that, that went away. Um, you know, we that went away it. for you or that went away for the program? For the program. NASA doesn't do to my knowledge anymore, top secret stuff. That was back at a time when we partnered with the military. So now we may do it again. Yeah. I don't know, but I, I wore that top secret badge for a few years and then that clearance went away so I didn't have to worry about it. Cause it's kind of a hassle. It's not sure. It's not fun. Yeah. Well with, with, you know, um, space force, is that what we call the military in space? Um, you know, when that came out, uh, there were a lot of jokes made about it, and I had jokes, uh, but my joke was always like, well, it makes sense to me. You know, they say in times of war, get to high ground. Like, you can't be higher than up there, and it just kind of makes logical sense that eventually we'll have some sort of Star Wars-ish, uh, you know, military up there, you know, patrolling, whether it be people coming in from other galaxies or dealing with things down on Earth. Um that it's going to happen, right? I think space force, the way I think of it is, we have assets in space that need our protection. Sure. Okay? So, given that premise, which I believe wholeheartedly, a space force is not a bad idea, depending on how it's implemented. It's just not a if, cheap idea. It's not. <laughs> but, you know, there are varying degrees of expense too sure. right yeah, so yeah. knowing knowing the way our government behaves it could become a huge bureaucracy and that's the part i wouldn't like but yeah. i do believe we need an entity whose job it is to protect those assets in space what if you were to put if you were a betting man and you mm -hmm. were to put a uh, you know a percentage on what you think the odds are that we're going to encounter extraterrestrials at some point would you say it's more than likely depends on how long the, the period is right as if long you as give humans me, are here do you think eventually we're going to run into somebody i would say that it's the chances are greater than zero yeah <laughs> yeah i would imagine so i don't know what's out there but they say there's a lot of space well, you think about my analogy is the universe is huge. Yeah. Think of it as a, a huge pizza, right? Mm-hmm. So on this edge of the crust is us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Furthest we've been is 235,000 miles from Earth to the moon and back, okay? So across that infinitely huge pizza on the other crust is a species doing exactly what we're doing. Right. How, how long will it take and how much money, technology, and brain development will it take for those two to meet at the pepperoni in the middle? Yeah, especially when we're so consumed with trying to get the cheese out of the middle of the crust. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, you know, it's a greater than zero probability. What percentage? I have no idea, but it's greater than zero to me. Right. I got it. Yeah, I got to imagine. Um, one of my other jokes about it was that, you know, if we do encounter somebody, they could be... And I, this is Star Wars talk now. So it, the millions of light years away is that a real thing? Mm -hmm. Like it would take 
it would take just an infinite amount of time to get there, right? A long damn time, yeah. It's so, a fur piece. The joke was if we perceived a threat and we just, like, launched at them, we might become friends with them, like, find a walkie-talkie that extends, become friends, and be like, hey, in 76 years, something's coming. You might want to duck. <laughs> Gotta have that awkward conversation in some other language. Um, if, you, uh, if you were to give, like, one sentence to debunk the whole... People say, well, we didn't land on the moon, because obviously you believe that. I think you even mentioned it in the book. If you were to give one sentence that just, like, takes the possibility out, do you have that? Like, if some idiot approaches you on the street and, like, we didn't land on the moon, do you have, like, well, there's this? Do you have an ace in the hole? I don't know if I have an ace in the hole. I usually show pictures, right? Right, right. Photographs, but then they all start screaming those are doctored and, you know. Right, that's Kubrick or whatever. Uh huh. Yeah. So, you know, I guess what I like to do on the internet is I like to first ask them where they went to school and tell them how proud their alma mater must be of them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and because it's just to me, it's I like to jerk their chain a little bit, but the more you jerk their chain, the more outlandish they become. So it's like, I mean, you can't fix stupid. Yeah. Well, these people, they probably. You know, they probably can't even wrap their heads around the fact that you've been to space. You right. Know, if they saw that was capable, then they'd be like, well, it's not that much of a stretch to imagine that he went to that big white ball out there. Well, you know what would be funny is if we took a bunch of the deniers and the flat uh -huh. earthers and we put them all on a spaceship and sent them up there for a few days and then brought them home. Right. And see, see if they change, you know, that, dying, that was the greatest move I ever seen, you know. <laughs> You know what? I thought it was flat, but it isn't flat. I saw I went around the whole thing. Who who knows, right? They could be just as they could be even worse when they get back. Right. <laughs> yeah, they would have a new part to their documentary to show me on YouTube. But at least they puked on themselves, so that there's that. <laughs> Which is one of my favorite uh yeah, oh. I, I would puke. I would puke. I couldn't I couldn't even do that T-38 training or whatever that was when, <laughs> when you get in the airplane. I couldn't have done any of that. But that's those guys that deny things. That's one of my favorite YouTube videos is watching. Is it John Glenn that punches the guy? Like Buzz Aldrin. Buzz Aldrin. And he's, I mean, Buzz is, he was old at the time. <laughs> Some guy was giving him hell and he just reached back and <laughs> just cold cocked him right there. That's one of my favorite videos. Um, okay, I have... Um, I have two more questions for you. Um, I see you keep moving your head, and I see there's some sort of metal behind your head. What, it, like a second shelf up there? Uh, yeah, oh, yeah. What, what is that? Did you, were you awarded something? I was, uh, Knights of Exarban in Nebraska gave me that medal. I was one of their okay. uh, guys several years, well, sort of right, a couple years after I flew in space, I think. Yeah. And I got to go to Omaha, and I got to put on a tux and walk down the red carpet. And I grew up in Nebraska. Exarban is just Nebraska backwards, but what are the, who are the Knights of Exarban? I'm not sure I can tell See, you. See, I knew it. I knew you were harboring secrets, Clay. <laughs> I knew there was something. I was coming out of this. I was going to get killed. There's going to be a knock on my door. And Mr. Huff, you weren't quite quarantining correctly. Why don't you come with us? The Knights are here. <laughs> Is there anything I think on that a lot of charitable work? So, is there anything on that shelf that uh, you find particularly interesting? 
Uh, there's an autographed football signed by uh, Jim Kelly. Oh, nice. The top. And, uh, oh, this piece right here, the astronaut, right. um, is, uh, I can't, I won't be able to think of who the astronaut is, but he was a, a senator from Colorado. But the coolest thing about the story about this is George Lundeen is the sculptor, and George Lundeen is a Hastings College person. Oh, nice. And the coolest part of the story is we were in Japan after my second flight to visit the the Grand Poobah of Japan. Okay. And when we went into his office, he had that same sculptor sculpture sitting on his desk. Oh, wow. So here's a Hastings College graduate astronaut with a copy of George Lundin's Apollo astronaut statue, Jack Swigert, or I, I wish, I, I'm sorry I can't remember. No worries. But then to go to Japan and see that they have that same statue on their desk was pretty cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, did, you mentioned Hastings College. Hastings is where I grew up. Did Did you play basketball there? Am I making played this football. up? Played you played football. football. I played basketball one year. My freshman year I played football, then I played basketball, and then I ran track. And my second year I planned to do the same thing, but the football coach said if, if you are going to play basketball, turn in your football gear. Okay. So, so then my dad and I had a discussion about where I would have the best opportunity to play uh, on the field or on the court. So I stuck with football. I, I kind of wish I'd have stuck with basketball after who, the fact. Right. Who was the – you weren't there at the time. Who was the NFL coach that was in Hastings for a minute? Oh, that was uh, – What, the coach for New York? What, why can't I – I'm spacing on his name. Yeah, I, I know who I, you're talking about. There have been Parcells. several. Parcells. Yeah. Yeah, he was at Hastings. Uh -huh. he, was he there when you were there? No? No. Okay. He was before me. Okay. All right. I don't know why I said spacing on that, too. That wasn't intentional. It was very appropriate. <laughs> okay. Um, if you were going to give anybody a shout-out, anybody that you think deserves recognition, and we've already talked about Susan and her sacrifice, so assume that, that your loved ones are covered. Do you, do you feel like anybody at this time or at any time just needs like some recognition for something that they've done? Um, yeah, I think, well, if you go recently from my astronaut career, Chip Davis, a Mannheim steamroller, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. fellow Nebraskan, and uh, he was instrumental in helping me get my Russian spacesuit secured for the museum there in Ashland, the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum. So, How did he uh, do that? Well, he and I kicked off a donation. Oh, okay, gotcha. For, and he helped uh, fund that. So I'm always grateful for him because to, to have that uh, piece of equipment for the folks in Nebraska to be able to see and share, I think, is really important. Okay. Okay, here's my last question. It's kind of a biggie, but we'll try and get through it. Um, the, uh, you know, with with the whole pandemic and then just listening to you talk about your experience when you're getting ready to go to space, writing your letters, you know, coming to grips with your mortality. If if someone came to you and said, this is, the world will end in six months, how do you, how do you respond to that? Do you respond with fear how do you react how do you change your life and what do you think happens after that six months wow um, that's pretty deep <laughs> um, you know family I'm a God family mm -hmm. first type of guy so I would deal with 
my family first and foremost and try to figure out what's the best way forward for all of us together. So you tell um, them. You tell them. Oh, this, you're saying that, oh, uh, yeah, I'm assuming everybody would know eventually, nah, right? I, I, in Americans this hypothetical, <laughs> you'd be tweeting about it. <laughs> Trump would. <laughs> <laughs> so you, if you were just told, do you think you would tell your family? Hey, six months, I've been told this thing's done. I don't know. Um, I, if I didn't tell them, I'm sure my behaviors would change such that they would know something's going on. Sure. So, you know, I don't know. Maybe I'd lie to them and tell them I had some form of incurable cancer and I was going to die. I don't know. That, that's that's a really tough, tough question. Because it's like with Columbia. We knew... We knew well, we some of some people knew there was a hole in the wing before and, they tried to come back. That's correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We suspected, right? Mm -hmm. But we didn't verify. And if we would have verified, what would we have done? Well, we'd have worked our ass off to figure out any possible thing that could have been done to potentially bring them home safely. Sure. Now, if all that failed, and it's not going to do anything now what do you do do you tell them do you not tell them i'm i don't know i imagine nasa would have told them and and they were a pretty uh faith-based crew so they probably would have prayed together and said hey we're going to give this our best shot but the odds are are not in our favor let's let's go for it and see what happens so right would i don't want to get too into that because i feel like we just don't have the time for it but um you know, as someone also who believes in God, I, I still fear death. Sure. Do you fear I death? Do yeah. Yeah. You you want to ride this ride as long as you can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, do you think that what would you do in that last six months? What would you watch less TV? Would you just sit there and stare at your family for six months? I, don't, I probably wouldn't sit and stare at him, but I, I'd probably try to figure out what we could do together that would be the most meaningful for us. Right. Um, you know, and with their input, I'd probably, you know, I'd have to tell them, say, hey, look, if this is going to happen, we need to discuss what's the best way to spend that last period. And it would be difficult, right? I mean, holy cow. You can only travel so much. You can yeah. only go to so many places. You can only, you know... It would be difficult, especially the closer the end gets, the harder it gets, I think. Is there one place that you want to go that, like, okay, we got six months, I've always wanted to go to this, like, I got to go see that? No, I have lots of those places. I don't have a single one that stands out. But, gotcha. Yeah, I mean, yeah. By, that, by that point, it might be good to go to the Holy Land. <laughs> <laughs> right? Right? Yeah. You, you yeah. might be right. Yeah. If it's but I bet, I bet that'd be the thought process of about a million and a half other people, right? So when you get there, <laughs> you, you know, you wouldn't be able to see anything because there's thousands of billions of people around. Yeah, well, part of this podcast is just staring into the unknown and <laughs> uh, and just how you respond to that. I usually respond with laughter. It's uh, That's how I, how I uh, deal with my nerves and all that. So I would just be laughing. So we... Uh, we always say there's a you know this doom is coming and we just kind of it's it's sort of based out of this Calvin and Hobbes and my kid said it uh, it's just like bip it's like we don't know how to respond so we just go forward and we laugh and we try and have fun uh, someone who's stared into the unknown Clay I appreciate you taking the time to sit down with me and having this conversation I hope people found it as interesting as I did well I appreciate it Nick and 
and I love what you're doing and uh, I'm excited for your career as it moves forward and I'll be watching. Thank you so much. Have a good one, all right? You too, brother. Just got some leaving.